1: from P.S. Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Okay, Carly, why don't we begin with that first query
0: letter? Will you read that out for us? Okay, here we go. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia, I love listening to the three of you provide feedback for writers in the Books with Hook segment and would appreciate your thoughts on this query. Stories of Monsters, An American Road Trip, 50,000 Words, is a road trip memoir set in the month before the pandemic. The book is an escapist road and narrative with contemporary feminist perspective comparable to Nomadland in its cinematic sense of place and to leave the world behind in its quiet build to seismic social change. During the first month of 2020, my husband and I drove across America. As we traveled along small highways and back roads, we expected to visit friends and family scattered through the south and west while exploring the land in between. We did not expect to learn old and mysterious stories, telling of ancient volcanoes, lost graves of ancestors, and monsters which might be more than myths. As the tales increasingly echoed in unexpected ways, I began to wonder why, in the aftermath of upheaval, we so often tell each other's stories. A book about the beauty of the before, written from the perspective of the after. Stories of Monsters, an American road trip, connects America across place and time while pretending the next great change upon. I live with my husband in City X, where I write a monthly column for our regional daily newspaper, the Newspaper X, Circulation 25,000, about finding community as a new resident during the pandemic. I previously lived in New York for over a decade, where I led the regional office of an anti-poverty nonprofit. This is my debut blog. For your guidelines, I have enclosed the first five pages of Stories of Monsters below. Thank you for your consideration, Writer X.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Collie. Cece, what did you think of that query letter? Stories of Monsters is such a great title. It made me curious. So
2: in terms of the first paragraph, I got curious to know if the author tells us that this is a road trip memoir set in the month before the pandemic. Does that mean that the whole book will span a month? Like, is that, is that where we'll be? It gave me pause because I'm not quite sure if there's enough that happens in a month especially on a road trip that could be an entire book right obviously I don't know but it's a question I had as I was reading this in terms of the second paragraph which is I always say that it's it could be the most important paragraph in a query letter because it tells us what your story is about right and I always fall in love with the story before I fall in love with an author she does mention that we did not expect to learn old and mysterious stories and I kept thinking how did you learn these stories like did you talk to people along the way I don't know were you looking at travel guides I I was curious to know and I think I would have liked that information to be included. Having read the pages, I think I I know, but again, this is something that I wouldn't recommend inserting on the query letter. And I would say that it's it's very beautifully written, right? Like the sentence that Carly just read, a book about the beauty of the before written from the perspective of the after. That's a beautiful sentence. It is, however, a sentence that doesn't tell me a lot. One thing that I would caution writers um, when writing query letters, especially when you're a very talented writer who can write beautiful sentences, is remember that the query letter is supposed to be salesy and pitchy it's supposed to convey information it's also supposed to intrigue us but we're supposed to be able to get a checklist and make sure that I know exactly what this book's going to be about where it would sit in a shelf in a bookstore et cetera. Et cetera. and I'm not quite clear on what the hook is and what the journey is I have more to say about that when I get to the actual pages but just based on the query letter I I was left wondering what this book is about and that's not quite what I'm supposed to be feeling when I finish a query letter
0: thanks Cece Carly what did you think I definitely agree. I, I really liked the title, but I also felt like I wanted to know if it was an essay collection or is it short story collections? I, it was I liked the title, but I think it's not really doing enough kind of work to carry carry the book a little bit. I thought the comps were interesting. So we have Nomad Land and Leave the World Behind. Nomad Land is one of those books that is kind of a huge bestseller and now a movie. So it's it's a good comp. It's kind of borderlining on because again, are you comp the movie? Are you comping the book? You know, all of that sort of stuff. And then leave the world behind. I have that on my bedside table and I just haven't got to it yet. I'm very excited to read it. But my understanding of that book is that it's a bit of a page turner in the sense of like very dramatic. And then as Cece was saying, I don't really get the sense through this query that there are actual singular dramatic he- events happening or this big climax or what are we building to? And because it's called Stories of Monsters, again, it sounds like a collection of stories. Therefore, we what are we kind of building to in, in a greater sense? So I, I think it was a bit vague. Um, I think it's interesting. It sounds like there's interesting things happening, but the vagueness is, yeah, it, it is a little bit confusing to me. The other thing is the author does mention, obviously, is this is uh, that in the month before the pandemic, but the pandemic did arrive on our shores in January. So they're kind of like un- unknowingly driving around through the pandemic because people in LA got COVID in January, right? So the fact that the pandemic is mentioned, I think is good. Good because obviously that's a huge context issue here. But I don't know. I just thought maybe we needed to address that a little bit more clearly in the perspective of the after, kind of quote unquote from the query, we are now living this life through quarantine. So I just felt like almost this this is another world, like the pre-pandemic world. Again, a little bit confused in terms of the hook and where the book is going. Yeah, I, I and I would have liked to know a little bit more clearly, is this kind of like essay collections or how experimental is this when you're saying something like stories of monsters? Again, story collection, essay collection collection. I needed a little bit more, I think.
1: And also my question is hearing about other people's stories, does that count as memoir or is that not just more collection like nonfiction of telling other people's stories? Because I mean, for, for both of you, what is your definition of memoir?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I would say that a memoir is similar to an autobiography, which is the story of your life, but it's a lot more introspective than an autobiography. It doesn't necessarily span your entire life. It tends to read like a novel if your life were a novel, whereas an autobiography is more focused on history and facts. So yeah, it's essentially your, your, your memories, this journey of your life or a sliver of your life. It doesn't necessarily need to span the whole thing, but in, in a novelistic way, right? Where you have, like Carly was saying, the climax and what you're building to and a resolution at the end, like you have that full narrative arc. I don't necessarily think it's a problem that she's inserting stories that are about others within the context of her own story, she could use that to mirror, right? Like that could be the hook, but we, the query letter doesn't currently mention anything about her own story, which is actually something that I'll get to when we discuss the pages. I think that's what's missing here.
0: Awesome. Carly, do you have anything to add to that? To me, being a memoirist is being a storyteller of your own life, right? Like we all live our lives, but being able to to create a storytelling ability around your life is a very different skill. And so that's why I felt really disjointed about this pitch because I didn't really feel like it was a memoir I did feel like it was a collection of stories and so to me a memoir is something that you know takes an issue or a moment in your life or a series of years or a decade and, and kind of builds a story around it and and that takes a lot of skill right an autobiography is like the play-by-play of your life you know that's journaling that there's so many other ways to do that but writing a memoir you know you're writing a book for the sake of entertainment for other people to buy and consume and enjoy and share so those are completely different things to me. right thank you
1: Cece what did you think of those opening pages so
2: for the listener, we start off inside the writer's head, and she is, is discussing the Mishipashu. That's, uh, I guess, a monster, right? Like stories of monsters. So she's she's mentioning various monsters, various creatures. Apparently, they live in the Great Lakes of Canada and the United States. It's an underwater panther. The Ashinaabe call it the Mishipashu. Then we jump, I think it's two paragraphs later, to Madagascar, where we're talking about a 10-foot-tall carnivorous creature. And in the following paragraph, we're in a museum, as the writer is telling us i learned these stories as i stand damp with rain and sweat in the Wit Museum in San San Antonio. And this keeps going, this jumping around. We were having a conversation in, on, on New Year's at her family's house. And I wasn't quite sure where we were half the time. And I had to keep going back to reread to make sure that I hadn't missed something. There is grounding in certain places. There are paragraphs where she tells us exactly where she is and who she's talking to. Um, there's also a paragraph, a paragraph with clear information. She does mention that three months ago, Uh, Jeff and I quit our jobs, left New York, and flew to France to start house sitting around the world. Now we are on a road trip to see friends and family across America. I wasn't sure how long the time in France lasted. I was confused about that. And then we start jumping again to a giant crocodile in Texas, back to the elephant bird in Madagascar. There's a beautiful sentence where she says, do you see the monster? Are you afraid? I think, I could be wrong, but I think that the author's intention is to evoke the emotion she felt when she was learning about these monsters. I think that's an admirable thing to to try to reflect the inner turmoil, the inner fractures that you're probably feeling as you learn about monsters and it can be a powerful device especially in literary fiction or i guess in a literary memoir the problem is that the jumping in time is really confusing a memoir can't follow our thought process like we we think like all of us like fleas we jump around from one spot to another um which is fine since they're our thoughts and that's not a big deal but they don't have to be understood by others our thoughts but our story does we we can't succumb to our flea-like tendencies to jump around in time because it just doesn't, it doesn't work. We get lost. I i got lost. I think I have like average intelligence. So i if I got lost, I think that the other average reader would get lost too. So what I would say, like big picture note to this author, if I were editing this book with her, I don't know what her story is about. I'm supposed to know what your story is going to be about in five pages. There's too much observing. She's in a museum learning about creatures. She's in, in her family's house learning about about something that a family member saw in the water. And I don't want to be observing something without the intrigue and the conflict. Memoirs are about someone's personal journey. It requires you to make it about you but so the reader can see themselves in you. A scene where a person sit standing in a museum looking at something can probably sound really boring, even though in your mind, your brain is probably fired up. But it's hard to reflect that on a page because it's secondhand experience. So it's us observing an observer. So it's just too much. It's like a story within the story within a story. It's not inherently interesting. So what I was thinking, like, again, if I were chatting with this author, what if you connected the monsters in your own life with the monsters that you're seeing. So for example, this is totally me guessing, right? Like I have no idea, but let's say that the author, just like Nadia Awusu in Aftershocks, a brilliant memoir, Nadia suffers from mental health issues and she weaves that in throughout her life's journey and she uses earthquakes as the literary device to create this beautiful imagery. What if you did that but with monsters? So let's say you're suffering with mental health or let's say you had a traumatic experience in your childhood or let's say that it's not something even traumatic, it's just I don't know, something else. Um we all have trauma to various degrees. You could link that to the monsters. The underwater panther could symbolize I don't know something in your life and the 10-foot-tall I don't even know what that creature was in Madagascar could represent something else. So but but the trick here is the linking. You need to start with your story first. That is the most important thing. That's what I would tell the author. And this is super challenging because I don't know her life story, but I do think that we all have monsters inside of us. We all have beasts inside of us. And I think that could be a really cool device if done
1: right. Yeah, absolutely. Because remember the first chapter's job is to get the reader invested in the protagonist, get them on board with them, get them to be cheering for them and wanting to spend the rest of the time. And just because it's the protagonist telling the story doesn't mean that we're getting to know the protagonist, especially if they're Focus is on so many other
0: things, Carly. I, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that the author is probably trying to build and weave a story where the monsters were a metaphor for the monsters within us. I think that the author was probably trying to get there. If I'm if I'm speculating, where I think that it was going, that's what I think. But we only have the five first five pages. Many agents only read the query or the first one page or five pages. Like we just aren't able to spend that much time with something when we're just not sure where it's going or just not gripped in the moment. Realistically, a you said, we just don't know who these characters are. You know, I, I would love to know much more and feel much more grounded in place. And the fact that this is a road trip book, and we are going to be moving places so much, like we're expecting to be moved around, but we are in a literal tornado of thought. We are going from, you know, the Great Lake to Texas to Madagascar, you know, bouncing between cultures. And, and I just had a really hard time wrapping my head around what the author wanted us to feel and how they were trying to ground us in that moment. And just that Buy in, right? Like this is a two way experience. Writing is a one way experience, right? You you are writing, right? And selling a book and selling a memoir is a two way experience. You are trying to grip the reader and bring them along on that journey with you. And, and this felt a little bit one sided for me. I think it's experimental. That's it's probably not my taste ultimately. But to write a commercial memoir that I was going to sell, you know, to a larger publisher, which again, you you know, this podcast reflects two agents that work in a commercial environment and in a capitalist society in a capitalist industry. So we are trying to sell books, you know, and. That's that's... that's my framework and that's what I come to this with. So I think just a bit of a smoother transition, a little bit less experimental at this moment, especially when you're trying to draw us in and building up to that, you know, disjointed, those disjointed moments, if that's where we're going, that's fine. But but yeah, I think there's just a little bit of thought to do in terms of what is the experience that you want a purchasing customer to get from this platform. Perfect.
1: Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, why don't you read us the second query letter? Dear
2: Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia, I am a a big fan of the podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, and grateful for the chance to have my query letter and first chapters critiqued on the segment, Books with Hooks. In my psychological thriller, The Body in the Reef, 85,000 words, four people go out on a boat, but only three come back. Was it a tragic accident or something more sinister? My book will appeal to readers who enjoy locked room mysteries with nautical settings like The Silence of the Sea and The Woman in Cabin 10 by Ruth Ware. Scott Wilson plans a romantic anniversary getaway aboard his sport fishing yacht off the shore of Key West. When his wife invites her sister and her husband to join them, Scott is disappointed but determined to make the best of it. On the day of the trip, the sky is clear and the sea is calm. Out on the water, the fish are biting. The drinks are flowing and spirits are high. But when night falls, a thunderstorm hits and the tide turns. Dangerous secrets lurk just below the surface. And when day breaks, someone has gone missing. I'm currently revising a second novel called Blood on Her Hands. I've had two first-person essays published in the Globe and Mail. I was a finalist in the Alice Munro Festival of the Short Story contest and a runner-up and an honorable mention in flash fiction contests for the e-zine Women on Writing. I review thrillers, books on my Instagram account, Pugs and Pages, I have a certificate in creative writing from the School of Continuing Studies, University of Toronto, and a master's from the University of Glasgow. I was a high school English teacher for 15 years. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to your feedback. Yours truly, Writer A.
1: Right. Carly, so what did you think of that query letter?
0: I was pretty hooked, I must say. The the books and hooks segment really came through with the hook on this one. I thought it was really interesting. I think we just went from a query where I was talking about marketability in the marketplace, going to a query that really, you know, Fits into what's happening in the marketplace right now. I had also thought of another comp for this book. Right now I'm listening to The Hunting Party by Lucy Foley on audio. And it's another kind of like closed uh, locked room mystery that I thought could have been a comp as well. Not obviously set on water, but, but you know, if you need another comp, there you go. One thing that, you know, was my main question about this. Again, I thought this was really good. My main question for this one was that I didn't know how many points of view we were dealing with here because we have Scott, you know, setting up the scene here, plans romantic getaway. We have these characters. Characters. But in you know all of these comps and all these types of books, usually what happens is we're getting the POV from all these other characters to kind of create this thriller setting. So I would have just liked to know in this query letter how many point of views we're dealing with. That would have been really um, important to me. But otherwise, I thought it was great. It was very well done. Great, thanks, Kali. Cece, what were your thoughts?
2: I really enjoyed this query letter. It was so well written. I thought that, like, if I, again, if I had to give this author notes, I think it's really great as is. The third paragraph, I would, I do think, elaborate a little bit more on the dangerous secrets, assuming it's possible without giving anything away. I don't know enough about her story and I don't want spoilers, but perhaps hint at something with more specificity, secret agenda, ulterior motive. I don't know, something that's not as generic as dangerous secrets. So again, it's really, really good as is. And I would request pages. I do think that in terms of the last paragraph, I, I have to say that her credentials are fantastic and that deserves a big round of applause. So absolutely great job. Great query letter, very polished, straight to the point, salesy, pitchy, exactly what we're looking for.
1: Awesome. Okay, Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? I know that this author expressed concern when they submitted their query to me as to whether they were starting at the right place and they weren't quite sure and they were hoping you and Cece could
0: kind of clear that up for them. Oh, that's a good question. So this starts with a prologue and uh, so that's probably why they were wanting to get the the great agent debate on prologues going. You know what, this genre tends to do a lot of prologues. I do think this fits in with the genre expectations here. So I don't think it's abnormal. I liked it in the sense that, yeah, I-, I thought it fit reader expectations. I did think there was a lot of rhetorical questions. My main note for these pages is that whenever, you know, these rhetorical questions kind of come into play, what ends up happening is the readers actually already asking themselves this question. And by you writing it in, you're actually duplicating the question when you really just have to trust the reader to actually already kind of be thinking in that space so to me it just shows a lack of trust in the reader which is just kind of a beginner thing and that's fine so just like striking through all of those rhetorical questions I didn't mind the first rhetorical question you know where am I like we're all asking where are you that one was fine but some of the other ones were had a stranger snuck onto the boat was I about to be strangled in my bed Um, and then later on we moved to another POV the detective something and woken me from a dead sleep but what question mark so so yeah so I just thought cutting out those of things because as i said the reader's already doing that and you don't need to duplicate that work um and my suspicions was were right regarding the query in the sense that we're dealing with a lot of different povs so again going revising the query based on the number of povs that we're going to have would be important to me but otherwise you know i i did think it started in the right place but just cutting out all of the rhetorical questions would be good and also i do think the prologue was a bit long if it's going to be a prologue it did really feel like we were in scene for a while so in that sense it's kind of chapter one so you know there's is the DC, what do you think? Do you think it should be chapter one or do you think it should be prologue? I
2: didn't mind the prologue. Happy to keep the prologue. I am thinking, so okay, there's no name in the prologue, right? Like we don't know who this is. And I think that's intentional. I think that we're supposed to be wondering, okay, who is this person who got up in the middle of the night and was and, and, went, and went outside her room, even though we were in the middle of the storm on a boat? If it is intentional, though, that this be kept as as something that we still don't know because of the genre, which is fine, I would recommend third person. First person is just too intimate for this kind of writing. The writing is solid. I appreciate that we're always immersed in scene. There's a good balance of inner life and outer life. Absolutely agree with the rhetorical questions, comment. What's missing here though, if it's first person, is emotion. There's one hint about guilt that's sort of like mentioned towards the end of the prologue. I would have liked to see that woven in um, from the beginning. She could wake up with a heavy heart and things like that and attach, specific emotions as she is thinking about each person so for example because she keeps referring to them as the others it's just so weird like assuming this is the wife i don't know if it is but let's assume this is the wife then her husband scott is asleep her sister's there and her brother in law is there like why would she refer to them as the others that just sounds super strange
1: because she doesn't want to reveal who the character is that's speaking so if she refers to scott then we know it's not scott yeah
2: exactly but that sounds weird in first person because nobody thinks of their family as the others right like it's again but if you would switch to third person
1: but she can't do that because then what pronouns is she going to use for the character oh would good to point. go with a, she would have to go with a he or a she and that's immediately going to reveal it's going to eliminate who some of the characters are so i think that's why first person is interesting chosen to good obscure
0: point. yeah that's why i think this really fits in with the tropes of the genre like i think they're checking all the boxes of okay. the the vague setup on purpose dramatic moment prologue who are the others again it reminds me a lot of the lucy fully. So yeah, I think mm. it's like on trend for the chart. That's
2: a good point. Yeah. I, I thought it was weird though, like the others. I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to fix that. Or maybe there isn't. Maybe it just has to be this way. Because I agree you can't you can't reveal the the, the person's gender. That would eliminate two people, right? Because there's two men, two women on the boat. I don't know. I I would want to see more emotion woven into the prologue. So that's my note on the prologue. Um
1: something that I would like to suggest to the author is that they write this in the present tense. I feel that this kind of scene has so much more immediacy if we feel we are there with the character as the scene is taking place. The minute you write something in past tense, there's this feeling that they've already survived something and so they're busy relaying everything. Whereas, you know, when you really want us to be biting our nails and being 100% on board, I feel like there's something about present tense that really helps there. But moving on to the first chapter, Cece, would you just like to carry on with that? Um, Great note
2: on the immediacy. Okay, so, my, so chapter one, we do know whose POV we're in and it's Detective Marston. So my question is, how important is this person? Essentially, Detective Marston gets the call that someone went missing on a boat, right? Like I'm summarizing here. If we're going to be in her POV a lot, then I'd like her to be in the middle of doing something in her own life when she gets the call, perhaps something that could be a subplot or else our introduction to Detective Marston, again, assuming she's an important character, is very much in the sense that she's only a vessel that's not good for character development. So we see this frequently in good detective of TV shows. TV shows are a great way to learn about storytelling. There's this great TV show called The Mayor of Easttown. The protagonist is played by Kate Winslet. The inciting incident in that TV show is the murder of a young girl. Um, but as we see Mare, that's the protagonist, um, investigate the crime, we also see her dealing with stuff in her own life. Issues with her ex-husband, grief over her son who killed himself, her ex-husband's getting remarried, there's a custody battle over her grandson. She met this new guy who's a writer. My point is these subplots are all essential because if she's the protagonist that she is, we need her to have a full and rich life. You need her to be a whole character. So if Detective Marston. Is is a POV character, if her POV is important, if we're supposed to be invested in her journey, We need more stuff going on in her life. So a great way to do this would be for her to be in the conflict in her own life, an active conflict that we're worried about and invested in. And then she gets the call. If this detective is not important, if her POV is not going to be here in the story throughout, then I don't think that should be chapter one. Because I want to get invested in the most important person first, right? Especially since the prologue is very much a mysterious prologue. And I don't know whose head I'm in. So that would be my note.
1: Excellent point. And another show that does that so brilliantly. I actually can't recommend the show enough is The Nevers on HBO. That shows the cop, you know, the policeman who's busy investigating a ton of things. We see so much about his life as well and the personal things that he's struggling with as well that, you know, gives so much more
0: richness to, to his character as well. So that's something else that you can have a look at. Carly? I thought those were all great notes. I am also loving Mayor of Easttown. I can't believe we have to wait every week for a new episode and it's not fair. It's like throwing me back to my childhood. When we have to like wait each week to, to watch a show, but yes, uh, amazing amazing show and obviously was at top of mind also when I was reading this section. Uh, you know this Detective Marsden section starts with I awoke with a start and grabbed my gun. Waking up is not you know a lot of people's favorite way to start a scene. It's safe, it's not bad, it's safe, right? And we don't really want safe. We want great, innovative, interesting, compelling. So I agree with CC. Let's start in a moment. Something happening, much more compelling than I awoke, right? Something's happening. We're interrupting something. There's a an opportunity for drama built into the scenario. We, we can't build drama into waking up with a start. I did like the, you know, single woman living alone. I slept soundly with a gun beside me, right? That's, that's telling us something. We're getting something there. But other than that, you know, that was, that was a little bit too straightforward for me, the waking up. Another thing that felt a bit straightforward was I pulled on a clean white blouse, pleated packy flack, and then strapped on my leather holster around my waist. Again, very straightforward cop uniform. Like if you're trying to tell us like, this is a really clean cop, you know, really, you know, straightforward. I don't know. I think there's a different way to do that whereas for example the the mayor character in the tv show we're talking about like she is always drinking beer always really slouchy wearing sweatpants and like has that like sloppiness to her which tells us something so the fact that this person is like so clean cut does tell us something but it's kind of boring right and so i if this character is meant to be boring just kind of figure out another way to tell us that as opposed to the like waking up alone with your with your khakis on (laughs) i just want to spend time with a character that's a little bit more interesting personally my other big 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 note for this is whenever we're writing a multi-POV novel all of the POVs have to be equally interesting that is what sells a book I've I've said this before I love multi-POV novels I love repping them I love reading them but the number one reason editors pass on multi-POV novels is that they aren't equally invested in all characters and so when we're meeting a bit of a boring character here I'm a little bit concerned that we're not going to have the same emotional investment as this huge dramatic moment on this boat with people going missing and then we flip to a Very straightforward detective, right? That's not as equally compelling. So we really got to bring up the stakes here. It's hard to project, as I said, where this book is going, because I don't know how many POVs we're getting, but this is a character that is a little bit forgettable. Not bad, just forgettable. Awesome.
1: Yeah. And just giving more personal context, you know, is a great way to, to solve that. All right, let's move on to the third query letter. I will read that for you. Dear Cece and Carly, I lost my son twice. The first time it was my own fault, I placed him for adoption as an infant. Then 23 years later, after a single face-to-face meeting, he died in his sleep. Given your interest in unique memoirs, I'm pleased with the opportunity to present my work for representation. Goodbye again, complete at almost 70,000 words, follows my journey from unplanned pregnancy, adoption, through a joyous reunion to my son's sudden death death. It presents the narratives of both a birth mother and a parent whose child has died and illustrates how the loss of a child through adoption mirrors that of death. Goodbye again brings to light the resilience needed to heal after losing a child, the longing to change the past and the messy path to self-forgiveness. The burgeoning recognition of adoption as trauma evidenced by the recent and anticipated releases of American Baby by Gabrielle Glaser and all you can ever know by Nicole Chung, make Goodbye Again a timely addition to the discussion. I maintain a blog that explores the emotional aftermath and complex grief of losing my son a second time, have published work in Severance Magazine, and am a member of the Henderson Writers Group. I thank you for your consideration. Kind regards, Candace.
0: Okay, Carly, would you like to let us know what you think of the query letter? Absolutely. As a mother of sons, obviously this first was. Pretty gripping to me, um you know. With says I lost my son twice. Obviously, I'm going to be pretty gripped by that. You know, something that uh, feels personal. And I think anybody would be gripped by that. I don't think you need to be a mother, but I have especially felt that close to that line. I thought that overall extremely compelling. I thought there was a little bit of awkward language, so I just want to highlight a couple of things that I think could be rewritten. There was the line then 23 years later, after a single face to face meeting, he died in his sleep. Like I just thought that was a little bit awkward, and I think it was just the author was really trying to condense this query and make it as tight as. Possible, but that that line felt a little awkward to me. So, like, was this person there while he died? Like, I just didn't really understand that. So, I think I would just make that a teensy bit more clear. I loved the title "Goodbye Again." I think this is a fantastic, fantastic title. I would keep that. Ah, sixty-nine thousand words, maybe a teeny bit short. Not too sure. Depends on you know how the story goes. I always say that a book should be as long as it needs to, as it takes to tell the story, right? So, you know, it's fine if it's shorter, but it could be could be short depending on what happens in the book. My only concern. here is what exactly about it maybe is uplifting it's extremely dark it's extremely tragic you know to read and it seems very important and it seems like something that needs to be told and it seems like something that other people would want to read however I think that we need a little bit of like an aha moment a lot of like big memoirs have this aha moment and in the query it says you know the mess, messy path to self-forgiveness which sounds a bit vague so I think I would just like a bit louder of an aha uplifting moment to kind of it into a way that I think could be a bigger, compelling, louder memoir. But obviously, there's a very tragic thing that happens there. So we can't change facts, obviously. But I think we need to think about what that aha moment is and what the reader is taking away from it. Are they just reading a really sad story? Or are they reading something where you know they can learn um, something that they can maybe take into their life or in a way to be more compassionate and and understanding and and read another's perspective. So I thought the comps were good. The only other thing I would have liked is a link to the blog that this author talks about. It could just be they skipped the that because of the the format of the podcast and that sort of thing, and um, and we keep things kind of vague, so that's fine. But I, when you're querying authors, I would include the podcast. And other than that, the Henderson Writers Group. I've been to the Henderson Writers Conference, so there's a little point of reference for me.
1: Wonderful. Something that I recommend to my students is that they kind of look at the wording on the memoir from the Ashes of Jesse Thistle. So that looks at you know his homelessness, his drug addiction, and you know you understand that it's an extremely dark book, but then it gets Gets to the part where it said one day he finally realized he would die unless he turned his life around. In this heartwarming and heartbreaking memoir, Jesse Thistle writes honestly and fearlessly about his painful experiences with abuse, uncovering the truth about his parents, how he found his way back into the circle of his indigenous culture and family through education. So, you know, it shows that kind of homecoming moment at the end, which is, you know, that redemptive arc that's, that shows the uplift. At the end, as opposed to like you say, perhaps just darkness and and trauma. Cece, what did you think? I agree
2: with with the notes that were given. I I thought the first line was very impactful in terms of the hook. In terms of the like the the bigger paragraph, right where she she shares her story. I almost wonder if she couldn't because right now there's no climax. There's no like what are we building to? There's no there's a very introspective journey, which I absolutely appreciate, is essential in a memoir and should be there. So. So I would keep that. I would also weave in an external journey that, and I kept thinking to myself, like, again, I don't know this person's life, but if she gave her son up for adoption and then 23 years later saw him face to face for the first time since his birth, I I assume, doesn't that mean that for 23 years of her life, she was doing something else? It has to, right? Like Because as sad as that was, she went through her own journey with her own climax and her own narrative arc over those 20 three years so i almost wonder if you couldn't weave those two stories together i like that she said that this illustrates how the loss of a child through adoption mirrors that of death i think that's that imagery is very powerful but i'm missing her own journey as a person outside of having given up a child of, of, of put up a child for adoption that i think could be following the journey of her dealing with this loss and this grief because it doesn't only happen in the moment right like when you put up a child for adoption it's not what happens and it's grief and then it's over. No, you live with that grief forever. How, however you feel about it, it's it's a loss that you will always carry with you. And But other things are also happening to you. So I'm wondering whether if she wove those two stories together, if perhaps we wouldn't be able to create a more clear narrative arc that would have more active emotions. I talk a lot about active emotions when I discuss memoirs. And grief... Is a powerful emotion, but it is not an active emotion. When readers see someone who's sad, who's who's grieving, we're typically not curious about what will happen next. And whether we like it or not, and I always feel weird when I'm critiquing memoirs, but whether we like it or not, we're supposed to be in- invested in, oh, what's going to happen next. So I think that maybe if she did that, we, that would be solved. I don't know. I would have to know more about her life.
1: I think Cheryl Stray did a really good job of that in Wild in showing how the grief manifested in self harming behavior in terms. Of promiscuity, in terms of kind of putting her life at risk by putting herself in these terrible situations, etc., which then takes the passivity out of it. And that makes us go, what's going to happen next? Because we know that this character um, who's grieving in wild is married, but is having, you know, these promiscuous relationships outside the marriage. And then that makes us ask the specific question: what is going to be happening to her marriage as a result of her behavior, which is as a result of her grief? So yeah. Carly, what did you think of those opening pages?
0: We have another prologue. <laughs> I won't dive uh, too much into that because I feel like we've covered the prologue conversation many times. But I will say one of the things I wanted to do here was put a date. I like I really like when we start with dates. I just think it provides a lot of clarity for the reader in terms of setting expectations. And they don't go into it questions because we have the place. So it says prologue, Gagway, comma, Alaska. And I would just add in the year because they get to it later on that it's 2013. So I would take the 2013 out of the first pair, or second. A paragraph and move that up to the front just because you know it just answers the question before you even know it's a question kind of thing so that i would move around i had a lot of like really small questions and and notes and comments through these through this one so i'll kind of go through it this person is starting a race in a costume and then we have her husband coming up to her saying let's go i have to tell you something the husband like grabs the arm my note here was that i wasn't really sure like what the tone was of this situation like if you're ready for a race, getting ready for a race your husband comes and like grabs your arm and kind of carries you away is it aggressive Is it loving? Is it urgent? Is it worried? Like, what is the feeling that's going along with that? Just to say, my husband grabbed my arm and and pulled me out of the race. Um, Because you're in first person, we automatically hate this husband, right? Because we're like, well, why is this husband doing that? That's not right. You know what I mean? So we don't really start off on a foot of like understanding and emotionality. So just tell us a little bit more about the experience or the aggression or some of the emotions that go along with this movement of, you know, your husband grabbing your arm. I also felt like the dialogue that comes next between the husband and the wife just comes off a bit kind of like harsh. And again, I, I wasn't sure if it was intentional or not he says Michael died she says what um what you know and then he repeat Michael he's dead and I just thought like it could be that's number one that's the way it happened this is a memoir this is the recollection of the events in the way that they happened number two it was kind of a harsh and aggressive situation and and not a comfortable situation or an intentional and this is just the way that the dialogue just happened to be written so as somebody's reading this I don't want to have questions about the intentionality I kind of want to just be in the moment and I felt like that brought me out a little bit so I would just like smooth that all out get a lot of layers of emotions kind of weaving through that I don't have a problem with it as a prologue necessarily again it's I always say this but I, it's really hard for me to critique beginnings without reading a whole book because I don't feel like we can always critique the beginning without the context of where this book is going and I think this is the case so I, I can't critique this prologue specifically um, then we get into chapter one and we go back in time so we're now into 1989 and we have we have a scene in a kitchen a ragged edge of Grammy gr- linoleum the living room snagged my sock I tripped again it's a shit I caught myself in the refrigerator handle careful of my baby bump and fought to disentangle the threads knacking my foot to the floor i succeeded in merely unraveling the fat further damn it once free i yanked off both socks and threw them in the trash on top of a crumpled doritos thing i feel like there's a lot of good information in here and but again i kind of had questions about the intentions of that and whether like what purpose was so ragged edge of grime and linoleum does this tell me this house is in disarray is this supposed to tell me about socioeconomic status it, the other thing is the doritos in the trash can sometimes pregnant women who have cravings sometimes they're doritos t- Totally fine. But also, like when you're talking about food like that, again, what's the intentionality? Are you trying to tell us that she had cravings and she really wanted Doritos? Again, or are we coming back to it like a socioeconomic thing where it's like all she could afford to eat for dinner tonight was Doritos? Or in 1989, maybe women were told to eat a diet of Doritos and that would lead to a healthy baby. Who knows what the uh what the pregnancy regulations around diets and, and what doctors told you to do at that time. I was a baby of the 80s, so who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. So I just I really would have liked to just know if this was all intentional or if I'm reading too much into it and the fact that I have to ask myself all these questions to me just said that um, I probably needed the author to be a bit more clear and if I was consulting this author I would have just again said all of the things that I that I just told you and then what happens we meet the boyfriend and they're going off to a consult the female uh, I think assumes it's a bit more of a therapy session and we get to the moment and it seems more of a religious organization steering her towards putting the baby up for adoption so yeah I thought one note that I had again I as I said, sorry, I have a lot of small details in this one that I want to tackle. Another small one that I had was we're talking about the woman who at this organization in her mid fifties and the amount of description we get about this woman in her mid fifties, clearly this author has a, as this is a memoir, this is a seared in her brain vision of who this woman is, but we get like fleshy facial features, lips curved naturally in a smile, belied her brisk voice. Like we just get like layer after layer about this woman. And I, it makes me wonder if she's a main character character because it was just so intense and it was just a a little bit like are you flying to me that she's really important by describing her that way because we have much we know much more about her and also the boyfriend than we do about our protagonist like we know that she's pregnant we don't know anything else about her like now I know more about Eddie and I know more about Joyce than I do about the protagonist so I just had some questions there I just felt like we need to refocus on who the main character is nothing wrong with that description it was just very detailed and just kind of as as a cue to the reader I was just a bit confused about Um, about what it was supposed to do. And as I said, we're kind of in this scene where we find out that she's encouraged to give this baby up for adoption. I had an absolute jaw drop moment at the end of these five pages. It was basically that her boyfriend set her up um, to go to this meeting, knowing that he was going to encourage her to to, uh, set up the baby for adoption. Yeah, and I had a bit of a jaw drop moment. So I thought we left off on a great, great, great hook. So lots of great things happening here. But as I said, I had a lot of like small details in this one that I think really brought me out of the project, but there's tons of potential here.
1: Great, thanks Colleen. Cece, what do you have to add to that? So I want to, you know, to to add to
2: the prologue debate. I I don't think we need the prologue. It's not creating intrigue. It's making me feel sad and it's really well-written, but it ends with her rocking on her knees, wailing for the loss of her only child, which is a very powerful, powerful scene. And my heart, again, goes out to this person, but I'm not intrigued. A prologue is supposed to intrigue me. I think I would just start at chapter one because there is something with a few tweaks that could be really, really, really intriguing in terms of hooking the reader right away. Again, if I were chatting with this author, I would suggest that she start already in the—I forget what it's called—but Carita's family services. She could be inside that place already, right? Like they could be in the console just to make the pace a little faster. And I wanted to, to share with 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 the listener Joyce, who's, who's the woman whose description we get a lot of, is chatting with Eddie and our protagonist. And she says, I understand you're pregnant and trying to decide what to do. Eddie nodded. I shrugged. And then Joyce continues talking. So instead of just having those four words, Eddie nodded and I shrugged. I would elaborate in the following way. The setup to make sure that it's really intriguing and you know makes the reader go, Oh my God, could be that she's there having this consult. Like Carly pointed out, she's thinking it's like a therapy situation. He's thinking adoption, but we don't, but she doesn't know that yet. And as soon as Joyce says that, Eddie could nod. Fine, we're not in Eddie's head, but our protagonist could be feeling specific emotions, specific anxiety about what's to come. And I also think she should be thinking about her baby. Like maybe she could even have baby names, you know? Like if she, again, adoption is clearly not something that's in her mind at this point. So make us really feel that. Maybe she calls her baby by the name that she's planning on giving him or her, depending on, um, maybe she has a name for a boy, a name for a girl, I don't know. Maybe she thinks about specific questions she has. Like, let's say this person wasn't properly mothered. Maybe she's worried that she won't be able to be a mother as well. And that gives me, not that sheds a light not only on what her specific fears are, but gives me a little bit about her trauma and her backstory too, right? Like, and again, I don't know if any of this is true, but these are just examples. So I would zoom in on that specific moment in that specific scene, flesh it out and set it up with intrigue. It sounds manipulative and it probably is, but you know, that's what storytellers do. And to make sure that when we finally get to the part where Eddie goes, yep, adoption. And she goes, yeah, adoption is totally not on the table. She gapes at him and goes, what the hell? That moment will actually have, will land better. Right? So that's what I would do. I don't even know what the biggest challenge with memoirs are (laughs) is because it's all challenges with memoirs, but perhaps when one of the biggest challenges is for sure the fact that you kind of have to set up your own life in a really intriguing way. And it often feels wrong to do that, but it shouldn't because you're a storyteller. This is what you're doing. And it's not your journal, right? Like you're doing this to, to make the reader gasp, to make the reader feel all these strong emotions. So so that's what
1: I would do. Awesome. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece and Collie for another great Books with Hooks segment. I have multiple courses coming up over the next few months. Some of them are standalones. Some of them are longer courses. Please go to my website at biancamaray.com. And just a reminder that Cece has a course coming up called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life's Journey into a Book. It'll be a 90-minute session offered via Zoom on May 20th with time for Q&A. There'll be lots of practical tips on how to plan, outline, and write a memoir plus a giveaway option where writers are invited to submit their pitch and first pages for a chance to be featured on the webinar. Anyone who can't attend live but wishes to watch the webinar should sign up anyway because the link will be emailed to them 24 hours later. You can find the link to book for this on
0: CC's Instagram page. rosettastone.com slash today that's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce if you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share this is for you hi i'm your co-host carly waters and i'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code pod15 for the month of April at checkout. That's pod pod fifteen at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
1: Today's guest is an international number one best-selling author. His novels have appeared on bestseller lists around the world. His books are sold in 150 countries and translated into 25 languages. He served two terms as president of Mystery Writers of America and was recently named a Grand Master of MWA, whose ranks include Agatha Christie, Ellery Queen, Mary Higgins Clark, and Walter Mosley, the author of more than 40 novels, three collections of short stories, and a nonfiction law book, and a lyricist of a country western album, he's received or been shortlisted for dozens of awards. It's my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Diva. Jeffrey, what a pleasure to get to chat to you on the podcast today. I've been a huge fan of your work since The Bone Collector came out in 1997. So what, that's like 24 years ago.
3: Oh my goodness. I better be sitting down now when I, I think of that length of time.
1: Yeah, It's it's a long time to have a really, really successful career because, you know, we speak often on the podcast, we speak to writers who say how difficult it is to have longevity, how difficult it is to stay relevant over an extended period of time. And something that I know that you said in early interviews is how you had to reinvent yourself because you were getting, you know, praise with regards to your early books, but they weren't selling like you wanted them to.
3: I I began writing. Because oh, I've been writing since I was uh, 11 or 12 years old, but I got serious about it and was first published in my 30s and was a bit, um, I didn't bring a lot of premeditation to the process. I would have an idea. I'd sit down and I'd, I'd, I'd write it. I would uh, revise it quite a bit. Uh, I write quickly. And then I'd put the book out in commerce. They would all have twists and turns. It was in the crime genre. But I, um, I they weren't selling well. They were nominated for Edgars and other awards, but they weren't selling particularly well. And I decided, wait a minute, let me go back to my prior to fiction writing careers, journalism and law. And I thought, what what does one bring to those those professions? And it's, obvious. They brought a sense of organization, a sense of planning ahead. You never go into court without knowing what the answer that the witness is going to give will be. You never uh, interviewed a a person as a journalist without uh, doing a huge amount of background and research. And I said, well, that's what we need to do. So I went back and I looked at my six published books with big companies. I mean, they were Bantam, Double Day Dell, and I think uh, Morrow uh, that were popular, but they didn't sell particularly well. And I reread all of them and I saw, well, I've seen what I'm doing here. They are not organized. They, they aren't paced well. They don't set up uh, what I would call a, um, like a, an Andante movement against an adagio. They weren't structured the way they, they should be. I gave away twists. I anticipated what a character would do. So I, I re-outlined them in the form they should be. And I rewrote all of them and I pulled them. Them and then sold. Well, I didn't sell them back. I gave them to a, a, my publisher again, a different publisher, I think. But said simply, these are the way it should be. And I, I, I said to myself, well, if and they were much better books. I mean, there's no question about it. They did what I wanted a book to be. And so I thought, well, if I, I did this process after I'd written the book, wouldn't it be more efficient to do the process before you write the book? And that's when I began outlining ahead of time. And I am an extensive outliner. I, I do uh, outlining for about eight months. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates said, you cannot write the first sentence of your story until you know what the last sentence is. And I don't think that one needs to outline it as extensively as I do. In fact, I'd, I'd recommend you don't because it um, can be tiresome for some people. But I do outline, I get things organized. That is the, the approach that I take and it's worked very well for me. Some people do not outline. They're panzers, seat of the pants. Absolutely wonderful. If you can produce a, a, a book that readers respond to, that's absolutely fine. But for me, and I think for most writers, you need to where you need to know where you're going before you set pen to paper or a pixel to screen
1: yeah and i think you said in an interview you said you spent eight months outlining but then you would only spend two months writing the novel in terms of the first draft which is absolutely amazing so it seems like a much more efficient way of writing besides the fact, obviously, that the content is so much more compelling as well.
3: Well, and I'll tell you something else. Have you ever read a book that should not have been written? Well, of course, we all have. That happens often because someone will get a a great idea for a, a you know a set piece beginning, a very exciting uh, beginning, and they'll sit down and write that, and it's it's very exciting. It might not be an action scene; it could be an emotional scene between two um, two characters. Uh, but in any in any of it, the emotions high, the excitement's high. Readers will be on the edge of the seat their seat when they read that, and those passages write themselves. So bang, three hours, out comes chapter one, and then the steam is up, the energy's up. Bang, out comes chapter two, a little slower, but still with with a great deal of energy. Three, slowing down a bit more, four, five, six, suddenly you've got 180 pages of very well-done prose and you don't know what's going to happen next. You look at that DM, the dreaded middle, I call it, and then the the ending, and uh, uh, the ending has, the, the middle is just full of cliches. That's all you can think of. The ending is deus ex machina. The um, a villain comes from out of left field. We've never met the villain before. There's no twist. There's no surprise. And every, well, every genre novel, absolutely, but frankly, every novel, whether you're a man booker nominee or a national book award winner, you need that, that throat gripping ending. Could be be emotional again, not not a car chase scene or anything like that. But we need the readers to say, "Oh my God, I thought it was going to go one way, and look what look what happened here." Well, that's not the book you've created so far, 180 pages. So you are then given the choice of doing two things. One is the you're going to figure out my spin on this, the morally courageous, intellectually honest thing, and throw out every single word of that. Dump it. Don't save that first chapter. Dump everything. Or you can do the morally reprehensible thing, intellectually cheating. Cowardly uh, thing, and tack in a bad middle, and throw in that Deus ex machina ending, and put it out in the stream of commerce. And what you've done is a disservice to your readers, because the readers are your gods. They are. Um, uh, Mickey Spillane said, "I don't have readers, I have customers." Well, exactly. And do you think Procter and Gamble is going to try to sell you liver-flavored toothpaste? No. They they sell you mint-flavored toothpaste because that's what people want. It's a quality product. So um, the if you produced a Liver-flavored book—that's that's really a sin. But if you've done an outline, you don't write that first chapter. You write it on a post-it note, exciting first chapter. Stick it on your bulletin board. Fill in a couple other post-it notes with plot twists and turns, and you stick that up on your bulletin board. And then you look at it for a week, and you realize there's no book here. There's no book. It's a great set piece beginning, but that does not mean there's going to be a good book that follows from that. So what you do is you wad up those post-it notes, throw it out, and start on something new. You've wasted one month, there's no, uh, maybe two weeks, you have not uh, created this, uh, you know, this behemoth of a a, a Titanic that can't turn away from the iceberg in time, and you go on and and do something else.
1: Yeah. And you've said that what makes up that mint flavored toothpaste is the following. So you said all of your books fall into a formula, they take place over a short period of time, they have many twists and turns, lots of reversals and big surprise endings, and You added to that as well that they also have a hook that is generally a political or social phenomenon that has been in the news. So could we start with each of those elements and breaking it down? So in terms of it happens over a short period of time, let's talk about the ticking clock in terms of urgency and tension in these kinds of novels. Why is it important to you that it takes place over that short period of time?
3: Um, Mickey Spillane, uh, I'll quote him again, said, people don't read books to get to the middle. We read books to get to the end. And it is my job, again, nothing's more subjective than writing. There are people who want to lose themselves in a, a lengthy character-driven book. I'm not saying Proust necessarily, but a a well-crafted psychological thriller, perhaps a first-person thriller in which um, uh, we study a character, and that can be very enjoyable and moving. I do not personally enjoy those kinds of books. I want to be in a pressure cooker, and I want my characters to be in a pressure cooker. And I simply I have a short attention span. I I want the story to move very quickly. And that means my books are not for everybody. There's no question about it. You tend not to pick up a Deaver book and then, you know, read a few pages at night and then close it and put it on your bedside table and do the same thing the next night. Generally, if you start one of my books and you like thriller crime genres, you're going to move very, very quickly. My model is the TV show 24, which you may recall from some years ago. And uh, I just don't want to give anybody a minute's sleep. Why? Because I, I, I do believe that, first of all, a book is the most emotionally engaging creative experience we can have because we bring our own imagination. We, as readers, bring our imagination to the, the story and, 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 and as opposed to just being fed it passively by watching TV or going to an art museum or listening to a concert, all of which are wonderful, but a book kind of moves us a little closer to that. And the most emotionally engaging way to do that, to engage readers, is by a very fast- Paced confrontation of conflict in question my definition of story uh, I don't actually have it in front of me so I'm going may stumble around a little bit but in the courses I teach I make my students write only one thing I encourage them to take notes for four hours I don't workshop anything I don't find that helpful I, but I do uh, I lecture but I do want them to write down this one thing and that it's sort of what I just said that our goal is to create the most emotionally engaging story they possibly can well what is emo- an emotionally engaging story? Well, that is a um, a work of fiction populated with living, breathing characters richly developed, both good and bad, who confront a, a a series of questions and conflicts escalating to the end of the story, which conflicts and questions all of which are ultimately uh, resolved to the reader's satisfaction. And the the conflict and the question, the questions are to me what make a book. If I could summarize my books in one sentence, which happens to be an interrogatory sentence, it's this: "What is going to happen next?"
1: Yeah, that's what keeps readers turning pages, and it needs to be like very specific questions about what's going to happen next, not just kind of general questions like "Will he live?" or whatever the case may be is. And the more you can engage the reader on, you know, very specifically in terms of what their character is facing in terms of their conflict, the better. And uh, something that I want to point out here: so, um, you know, you you said, you don't want your readers to be sleeping. You want them to just keep turning those pages. And you've said in other interviews, you want them to have sweaty palms, racing heartbeats. Every chapter ends with a question that keeps the pages turning. Now, just for an example here, I mean, I don't want to give too much away in terms of your latest novel, The Final Twist, just looking at those, you know, opening sort of pages. Your prologue has a highly tense flash forward in which, you know, the character is trying to rescue someone, and in the middle of this, he, he is discovered. So you know, there's going to be a showdown. Then chapter one, the end of that chapter ends with a bomb exploding in what is supposed to be a safe house. Chapter two, there's a discovery of something really interesting. Chapter three, there's a discovery and a warning. Chapter four, somebody crying for help. And your chapters are wonderfully short. You know, And this is something I tell my creative writing students all the time. Try and keep your chapter is short because there's a psychology to that in that when a reader looks at you know where the end of the chapter is if it's 20 pages away they just kind of stop in the middle of the chapter which is not what you want because it's a slow burn you are building up to something and as soon as they close the book you've lost the impetus of the scene whereas if it's a short chapter you know they just keep flying through those chapters and you just grab the reader by the throat and you just keep them going with these cliffhangers at the end of every chapter
3: you bring up a good point. I'm going to expand a bit on it if I may. I have been aware as you as an author as well and other authors of the erosion of our audience, uh, a migration to what I was referring to as passive forms of entertainment, binge-worthy TV shows, all of which, many of which I should say are fantastic. I mean, I love those too. Who doesn't? But there are, uh, of course, podcasts, there are blogs, there are video games, and they are taking time and um, our audience away from from us because it's easier to sit on your butt with a remote control and uh you don't have to think quite so much. But as I said before, I do believe that a book is the most emotionally engaging creative experience we we can have. So I have made an effort with the um the, the books in the Cult of Shaw series that's the Never Game, The Goodbye Man, Now The Final Twist, and the fourth book I'm working on right at the moment, and my new Lincoln Rhyme books. I've made an effort to create um well to, to utilize what I'm calling the streaming. TV style so that a reader will be able to pick up one of my books and realize this is kind of like binging TV, but I enjoy it just a little bit better. My style is, is this, shorter books, 100,000 words, no longer 135,000 words, shorter chapters instead of 30 chapters, now 85 or 90 chapters, shorter paragraphs, more staccato language, much less internal monologue and pondering. The action is revealed through, uh, well, the, the story is revealed through, through action rather than exposition. I will uh, make sure that no one has to look up a word in a dictionary. I'm very conscious of word choice. So I am uh, I call it, the again, the streaming TV style. And it is all geared to doing what I wake up every morning terrified that I will not be able to do, and that is give my readers a, uh, a bad experience. It, this is all about them. And the um, writers who write for themselves, they certainly can do that. I mean, I've tried to read Infinite Jest by David Foster. Wallace and um and it, it, within a circle it's it is a vastly respected book and I certainly appreciate his style I, I I must say I can't get into it like I don't get into Ulysses by James Joyce particularly but uh, those are written for you know a much smaller audience but that's not what I, I do that's not what I want to do and not what most commercial writers want to do we want to give the readers what they um, uh, what they want what they will enjoy and so I think this uh, this new style approaches that now at some point you you know you I'm, I'm not going to Write a script that will give the character's name colon and then the dialogue. That isn't going to happen. But I think it, I've pared down my style enough so that uh, people can pick it up and then they 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 read it quickly. I hope for a one sitting read, maybe a two sitting read. But now Bianca, there's a there's a, a, a downside to that. If you're not if if you're not a a prolific writer, if you don't enjoy writing, I'm very lucky. I enjoy writing, and I um, I'm prolific only in the sense that like uh, I, I can only watch so much so many Curb Your Enthusiasm reruns. I get antsy. I want to get out and, and and write. So by writing shorter books that people read more quickly, that means you've got to produce more. You need more product out there. Uh, you, you don't go to the drugstore and look at um, an empty shelf and say to the clerk, where's the toothpaste? And they say, well, you know, Procter & Gamble wasn't inspired by the muse to make toothpaste this month. Well, that doesn't work. Procter & Gamble rolls up its sleeves and produces toothpaste. Uh, you as an author uh, writing books of the sort I was describing, you need to roll up your sleeves and write, write the damn book and Get, it, get them out there. I, this year I've done uh, two novels. I've got the final twist out now. A new Lincoln Rhyme novel, the character from The Bone Collector in November, The Midnight Lock. Uh, a short story preceding each of those as sort of a teaser. And then um, doing two uh, Amazon original stories this year. And um, three audible.com original occult uh, horror audio only uh, uh, stories, which, I, uh, which I'm doing is kind of a lark for the fun of it. And they've done pretty well so far. So very excited to do that. But get the product out there it's a business folks it's a business
1: and I love what you said about that you know limiting exposition etc because something that we I see a lot with my students work is the struggle to tell the difference between showing versus telling Mm -hmm. and so with beginner writers I'll often say don't have your character be alone in a scene if your character's alone in the scene they're all in their head which means you're mostly going to be telling whereas you know you can see how masterful your writing is because your character begins you know we our entry into him from chapter 1 is that he's alone but it's all showing it's all dramatized it's not all the stuff that we you know we we tangled up in his thoughts and the and the pacing of the story mm-hmm. slows down so um yeah the difference between showing and telling is 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 integral in terms of you know uh, what you said about the twists and turns lots of reversals and big surprise endings i think most of our listeners understand the twists and turns and the surprise prize endings. What do you mean when you speak of lots of reversals?
3: Uh, Reversal, I guess we could um, define that as a um, a, a conflict. The uh, character runs into a situation where um, he is uh, or she is being saved by someone. They're in peril. And um, the um, person pulls, uh, Rin Tin Tin pulls Timmy out of the well. And then it turns out it's not Rin Tin Tin at all. It's a wolf. And I'm being a little facetious here, but you get the idea that we have in our mind that uh, the story is going to go in a situation where little Timmy is now saved and can go on and do whatever Timmy's going to do. But Timmy is now hauled off into the wolf's den. That um, is not what he expected. His whole world has been turned up, upside down. And then I would just, just, you know, workshopping this, if I may, we're in the wolf's den. Well, there's the wolf is there's a wolf family and the wolf has saved. A couple other children from um, the uh, nefarious corporate organization that puts wells in dangerous places where children are going to fall into them. So suddenly there's a reversal again that the... um, Can I take a few notes here, Bianca? I kind of like that idea. I may do something with it.
1: Absolutely, I love it.
3: <laughs> so anyway, that's a reversal where the book goes in a uh, a, a different um, yes. uh, goes in a different direction than one would expect.
1: Wonderful. And in terms of the hook, because you know, we on the podcast we have two amazing agents who read the query letters and the first five pages that our listeners send in. And often, what we saying to our our listeners is that you haven't explained the hook in the query letter. There seems to be no hook. There's kind of this meandering theme but you haven't gotten to the central conflict you haven't gotten to the hook and so it seems that many of our listeners struggle with exactly how to define a hook how to find the hook in their novel obviously it's so much easier as you say to define that up front have it very clear in your mind before you begin writing because i think it's very difficult to just write and then afterwards go oh, okay let me dig through this to try and see where my hook is so could you give us examples for you what those hooks are sure
3: and you y- we do need to come up with this ahead of time because it requires research. And, you know, we all love police procedurals where, uh, the, um, You know the body is found, and the uh, policeman at risk to his or her career pursues the killer. That may go into uh, the town uh, politics, uh, layers of deceit, and so forth. Well, fine, Uh, been there. You know that's that's good. What what do we? What makes your ears perk up? And I'll give you an example. In um, the um, the broken window one, a character goes into a bar, and um, a fellow chats her up, and she um, uh, says, "Wow, this is amazing. We have the same interests." And it goes on and on. And he said, yeah, and I was at such and such a place and I just loved it. Maybe a, a forest preserve. And She said, oh, my God, I grew up near there. I used to go there all the time. So suddenly she thinks he's um, he's her soulmate. Well, in fact, no, who he is, is a um, uh, psychotic, Killer who works for a data mining company, and he has learned all of this because of her records in the data mining company. And data mining companies suck up everything about us. Well, that's the hook: data mining. And I did a huge amount of research into data mining. So when you say a psychotic killer meets a woman and then murder her, murders her, and goes on to other victims, well, okay, we've we've seen that. But a psychotic killer uses data mined information, which we all have, as an attempt to work his way into somebody's life. That's a hook. Uh, the Never Game, the first in the Coulter Shaw uh, s- uh, series, a, um, a girl goes missing. Okay, Coulter Shaw, uh, is, uh, her father offers a reward. Coulter Shaw, uh, who seeks rewards, goes after her and um, uh, to try to find her and it turns out, which is okay, you know, kidnapped child, t- terrible story, but We've seen that, but the person who kidnapped her may or may not, because not all is quite what it seems to be in my books. May have been taken a video game out of the computer context into the real world and is playing it out in real life. And that raises the the question, which is the hook: Do video games encourage or create a violent proclivity within players, or do they not? And so that's that's the hook in the uh, the final twist, uh, the third in the Colter Shaw series. Well, I, I'll back up the the middle book is the, the Goodbye Man. That's about cults, not occults, but cults, C-U-L-T, uh, the James jo- Jim Jones kind of thing, the um, Charles Manson phenomenon. And uh, uh, in the, uh, the final twist, that is about a, um, I, I, just, I can't really talk about it, but a, a major political and social phenomenon, <laughs> a conspiracy that I've been fascinated with for a long time. It has uh, political and social implications, uh, governmental implications. And it's um, uh, something that I have not seen written about, but I unfortunately can't describe the hook until you've read the book. So, but it but it too has a hook. You need somebody. You need to perk somebody's ears up. And say, oh, I haven't heard that. The Vanished Man, a psychotic illusionist as as a killer. Uh, the Coffin Dancer, a young woman pilot, former Air Force, trying to build up her charter business, uh, dealing with uh, you know a misogynistic world of male pilots, and then uh, with terrorists getting the avia her aviation business uh, off the ground, literally. So uh, so things like that are books
1: and that's it for today's episode if you have any questions about writing or publishing please email me at the at gmail.com and i'll do my best to get them answered for you i hope you'll join us for next week's show in the meantime keep at it remember it just takes one yes